Let me go ahead and say happy Sabbath to everyone. All right, and I have a question for you. Are you really happy? Amen? Amen. We don't want you to get caught up into vain repetitions. We want to always make sure we're checking our hearts to make sure, are we just saying it or are we truly experiencing it? You know what I'm saying? We live in a world of insincere sentiments. Are you aware of that? How many times have you typed LOL and you know you wasn't laughing out loud? You get what I'm saying? Sometimes we, you know, we, we start saying things that we don't necessarily experience, but I don't want that and I trust God doesn't want that. He wants you to be happy. That was the very essence of Jesus's message when he began his ministry on the Mount of Blessings. He constantly said, blessed, blessed, blessed. His desire is that we would be happy, happy children of God. And I believe that even living in a time in Earth's history where there's a whole lot going on, realities facing us time and again, and we find ourselves constantly perplexed and challenged, I do believe that God can still cause us to be a happy, joyful people in the Lord. And my hope and prayer is that we always receive the joy and happiness that Christ so desperately wants to give to each and every one of us. And I believe that uh, we're living in a time right now where this subject of the plan of salvation, it is something that needs to be revisited. The more that I am constantly exposed to people of all sorts of walks of life, various Christian denominations, outside of Christianity, I love to talk to my Muslim brothers and sisters, my Hebrew Israelite brothers and sisters, those who are in uh, no faith, in fact. You know, I just enjoy to hear why. I got a chance to meet a dear sister not long ago, and she's an atheist, and I, I wanted to ask her a question. And it was one of our sisters here's daughter, and she was kind enough to indulge me, and, and she was an atheist, and I wanted to know why. I just said, you know, help me understand why. Like, what, what makes you practice atheism? And as she gave her answers, you know, it's not that I, I lacked a response, but it wasn't the time to give a response. It was a time to listen. And the more that I would listen and understand, it, in, it, it put me in a position that should we meet again, I believe by the grace of God, uh, it looked to me like we had a good meeting. It, it's like when we talk again, and she did start to ask some questions. And, you know, I, I said, well, you know, you're asking, so now I got to give an answer. And in giving those answers, you find that that little statement I read from a book called Acts of the Apostles, page 109, where it says, all over the world, men and women are looking wistfully to heaven, longing for light, for grace, and for the Holy Spirit. And it says, many are on the verge of the kingdom, waiting only to be gathered in. And I think to myself, the harvest really is more plenteous than we realize. And there are many who are waiting to be gathered in. But the reality is, is gather them into what? If we ourselves do not have a firm understanding of how Jesus saves and what he saves us from and why, if we're not clear on it, it's going to be hard to make it clear to somebody else. And I can guarantee you the world is longing for salvation. They're absolutely longing for it. And so this is the beginning of a series on dealing with the subject, the plan of salvation. And I want to encourage you to not only uh, hear, but to take notes. You know, get your pen out, get your papers out, get your phones out, notes, whatever it is that you want to use, because we're going to go over quite a bit. What we're going to do is study. This is not so much preaching as it is teaching. And so I want us to make sure that we're studying together so we can, by the grace of God, really understand what we believe. And then go tell as many people as you can. As has been our custom before we go into the word, I'd like to first have a word of prayer. And I'd like to do that upon my knees. And so if you'd like to, please feel free to join me in kneeling as well. If you cannot kneel, just bow your heads reverently where you are. But if you can kneel, let's kneel together and let us pray as we ask God to prepare our hearts to receive the word. Our loving Father, Lord, we're ever so grateful once again for the gift of life. We thank you for bringing us safely through another week. We thank you, dear God, for these opportunities to hear your voice. And Lord, we pray that all of us here on earth shall remain silent before you as you speak. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Grant us wisdom that goes beyond our years. Make your words plain to us, I ask. And Father, I pray that while you bless others, please do not pass me by. 
Give me a fresh revelation of your love, a fresh revelation of your power. As in the sanctuary, let the bread be fresh and hot on today. And may we all feast upon thy words and may it help us to become better children of God. For this is our prayer that we do ask with the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. I think it's good to revisit the beginning of time to understand what God's plan was. And then we can look at where some things got broken and then, of course, how God is going to bring it back. Now, again, we're not going to cover it all in one sermon. You know, this is a subject that I'm thankful we can take some time with. There's no rush. But we're going to cover some foundational, uh, fundamental truths that will help us on this journey of really knowing how to arrive in the arms of Jesus and to be able to truly receive the salvation I know he wants to give to each and every one of us. We're starting in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible lets us know something very, very clear, God's intention when he created man. It was in Genesis 1, and we're going to consider verses 26 to 28. Genesis, we're looking at chapter 1. I'll be reading from a King James Version, and uh, here's what it says. In Genesis 1, we're starting at verse 26. The Bible says it like this. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that creepeth or that moveth upon the earth. This is the testimony of scripture. When God created man, brought man into the world, God made us in his image and his likeness. Now, the Bible, obviously we're reading English, but of course the Bible was not written in that. It was in, written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And in the Old Testament from here in Genesis, we're looking at the Hebrew if we were to look up the original words. I thought it was good for us to look up this idea of image and likeness, right? Because God said, this is how I made man. I made man in my image and I made man in my likeness. And the reason we're going to talk about this is because I remember talking to some uh, friends of mine who were ministers and, and they were, uh, we were all talking about being created in the image of God. And as we were talking about it, I remember we got to this point of, I gave a story of many years ago, and I was in a church, and the ministers were teaching the young people about how they were created in the image of God. And uh, there were some challenges that I had in my mind, and I shared it with my minister friends, and we were all talking about it. And today, you're my minister friend, so we're going to talk about it too. And uh, here's what the Bible says as it relates to this idea of image and likeness. When we think about the term image, this is what the word comes up. And, and this is what really caught my attention when I was thinking about we're created in the image of God. It says that we have a resemblance and more so a representative figure of God. In other words, when God made man, we were to be a representation of who he is. God's plan in making the world know who he was was not only going to be through man, but especially through the family. And that's why when we started our year out, we talked a lot about the family. We talked a lot about marriage and we talked a lot about parenthood because that was God's original plan. There's actually no better plan. The most clearest way to make himself known was through the tenderest ties that human hearts can know. And that was none other than in the family structure and in the marriage. Well, here it is that God is making it clear that when I created mankind, God says, I wanted you to be a representative figure of who I am. When the people see you, they get to know me. Now, understanding this, the word likeness was another word that I thought was powerful because it spoke to God saying, I want you to have the same mannerisms that I have. The character qualities that I have is the character qualities I want you to have. And the reason why this is very important is because as we continue in the Genesis story, right? Again, we have this first part where God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. But now let's go to Genesis chapter three. No, two. When we go to Genesis two, 
There was something here that I don't know about you, but I always found this to be a strange statement. In Genesis chapter 2, when God speaks to the creation of man, he says something in verse 25 that always caught my attention. It always caught my attention. In Genesis 2 and verse 25, if you're there, please say amen. It says in Genesis 2, 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were what? They were not ashamed. Now, if you study the Bible carefully, nakedness and shame go together. Nakedness and shame. You remember that there's a message to the church of the Laodiceans. And uh, when God was giving the rebuke that you think you're rich and increased with goods, but you don't realize wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. When God got to the council of what he wanted them to buy of him in verse 18, God says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. And then he said, and then white raiment that the shame of your nakedness would not appear. So notice that in the Bible, shame and nakedness usually go together. Also, if you read Isaiah, uh, I believe it's 43, when the Chaldeans were being judged, the daughters of the Chaldeans, and God said, uncover thy locks and make bare your legs and uncover your thigh. Your nakedness shall go before you. Yes, your shame shall be seen. So in the Bible, nakedness and shame often go together. But here in Genesis 2.25, it says they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. So I began thinking, right? I'm like, naked, not ashamed. Would you agree that if uh, suddenly, poof, all of us were naked in this room, would we be ashamed? Yeah, you know, we'd run out of here lightning fast, wouldn't we? Trying to cover up as much as we can in the process, and we'd run out of here, because, you know, we'd suddenly experience shame. It's like, my nakedness, oh my word, you know, you know, obviously. Now, I began to think about it. The reason that we, we are all naked in this room right now, every single one of us, and I'm not even speaking in a spiritual sense, I'm talking about a physical sense. We are naked, but we're not ashamed because we have something over our nakedness called clothing. Is that right? We're all naked, but we're not ashamed because we have a covering. We have something covering our nakedness. And that's why we sit boldly in the pews and I stand boldly before you. Now, watch this. <laughs> now, watch this. I'm getting somewhere. So Adam and Eve, I believe, according to the word of God, they were naked and not ashamed because they had a sufficient covering. Are you following that? Oh, but what happens in Genesis 3? As a result of Eve talking with a snake, and ending up buying into the thought processes of that snake. The Bible says in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, something very important. Let's turn there. In Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, notice what the Bible says. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, And they knew something they did not know before. What did they know? They knew that they were naked. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And so evidently, Adam and Eve did have a covering. Because they were always naked, but they weren't ashamed because they had a covering. But how something happened that when they made this covenant with death and chose to sin, It voided the covering, and now their eyes are open, and they see their nakedness for the first time. And then immediately, they try to cover themselves up with insufficient garments. This is how the story begins. So I'm going through my mind, and I'm like, all right, Lord, I I need to understand. What are you trying to communicate through this story? Well, remember, we were made in God's image and likeness. Is that right? So that means that there's some type of reflection in us that we can connect back to God. Did you know that the Bible says this about God? The Bible says he covers himself with light as with clothing. So that means that when God made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, that means Adam and Eve were also covered with light that was like clothing. Would you agree? Because again, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. God covers himself with light, and therefore Adam and Eve must be covered with light. 
Now, at the end of the day, what really is the purpose of light anyhow? What is the purpose of light? Well, the Bible helps us understand it in very clear language. Whatsoever does make manifest is light. The purpose of light is to make something manifest. That's the purpose of light. It makes something known. It makes something manifest. God covers himself with light. Adam and Eve were covered with light. When Adam and Eve sinned, evidently they lost the light. So we need to talk about that for a little bit. Light makes things manifest. So I was wondering, what is it that light makes manifest? When we're dealing with symbolic spiritual language, what is it that light makes manifest? There was a time that Micah was going under judgment before God. And when he was, he began to have God, he began to plead his case. And here's something that Micah said that I thought was powerful. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his what? So what is it that the light was to reveal? God's righteousness. So when Adam and Eve were created in the beginning, God covered them with the light of his righteousness. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they lost the light of God's righteousness. And so do you know what Jesus did? Go to Genesis 3.21. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? In Genesis 3.21, Christ saw this problem, but Christ had a solution. And he gave it first in symbolic language. You see, again, when God made Adam and Eve, he provided the clothing. And he covered them with his light of righteousness. When Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with their own garments. Which still reveals a lot of nakedness. I guarantee you, if any of you were wearing an apron in this room right now, that wouldn't be good. Those fig leaf aprons would, cut, would reveal a lot of nakedness. And God knew this. And so you know what God did in Genesis 3.21? Look at what the Bible says. It says in Genesis 3, right there in verse 21, the text says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins. And what did he do? He clothed them. God literally looked at that apron and said, no, 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 this is not going to work. <laughs> God looked at that apron and said, mm -mm, this is not going to work. God says, I'm going to have to clothe you. But this time when I clothe you, it's going to require a sacrifice. An animal's going to have to lose his skin so you can get clothed with skin. Are you following? And so you know what I realized? The whole plan of salvation is a summary of? It's God's plan to help us get our clothes back on. I'm trying to K-I-S-S, keep it simple, saints. God is lit. The plan of salvation is this beautiful plan of how God is going to help man get his clothes back on. The garments that he was once given, God says, I'm going to put together a plan that I'm going to clothe you all over again. But in order to get the clothing, this time, it's going to require a sacrifice. This is why the story of redemption to me is just so beautiful when I begin to look at it in all of its broadness and its beauty. God taking off his clothes so he can cover us with clothes. Now, sometimes, you know, we, we have pictures. And I believe personally that when we see pictures like this, they are coming from hearts that are full blown innocent. There's, there's no malice, there's no ill intent when individuals put images like this together. But whenever we try to talk about God trying to once again cover us with his robe of righteousness, whenever we talk about that, we see images like this. Maybe you've seen this before. You ever seen these images? These are images of what God wants to do to help us get those clothes back on. Now, you heard me say that I believe that when these pictures are put together, it's very innocent. There's a difference between the word innocent and accurate. Are you following? There's a difference between the word innocent and accurate. You know, there was, uh, one, of my, one of my deceased mentors, W.D. Frazee, 
he talked about a, a daughter that he had. And, and the daughter that he had, uh, you know, she wrote a letter to him one time. And when she wrote the letter, she started the letter off writing, Dear Dad. But instead of writing, Dear D-A-D, she wrote, Dear D-E-D. So basically, it was Dear Dead. And he asked the question, he said, when I got that letter from my daughter, he said, you know, when I read Dear D-E-D, he said, I guess my whole day was ruined because she misspelled my name. And he said, no. He says, I know what she meant. So even though there was an error, even though there was a mistake, he says, no, no, no. He says, but I know what they meant. I understood what they meant. This is the attitude I take towards this pictorial. It is not accurate, but I know what they meant. They're trying to simply convey a point that what God longs to do is put our clothes back on us, to give us back that righteousness that was forfeited through the deceptive power of Satan and sin. But my brothers and sisters, there's an inaccuracy in this picture, and Zechariah 3 spells it out beautifully. Let's turn there. In Zechariah, the third chapter, you will find that God makes it crystal clear what his plan is. In helping us get our clothes back on, beloved, we need to make sure that we do it accurately. So let's notice what the Bible says. Zechariah, we're looking at chapter 3. And in Zechariah 3, we're going to consider verses 1 to 4. And let's notice what the Bible says. In Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4, here's the true story. It says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now watch verses 3 and 4 carefully. And this is why I said innocent and inaccurate. Watch this. It says in verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with what kind of garments? With filthy garments. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now watch verse 4. It says, And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, What are the two words that he said? Take away. He did not say cover the garment. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said take away away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with what of raiment? Change of raiment. This is the missing mark of these pictorials. What they're showing, and, and, and there's a reason I'm talking about this, because the Bible is so clear. God does not save people in their sins. God saves people from their sins. These pictures do not give that message if you're not careful. It looks like I still have on my filthy garments, but his righteousness just covers it all up. And there's a false doctrine in the world of Christianity that endorses the images that we are seeing right now. And that's not the plan of salvation. And the reason I say this to you is because we need to remember God wants to take away our filthy garments or our sins. This is what we read in John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is what we read in Matthew 1, 21. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from, not in, their sins. Their sins do not remain. They are saved from their sins. The sins are taken away and they are gone, gone, gone. Now, the reality is that once Adam and Eve sinned, the story changed. This goes back now to that conversation I was having with my minister friends that I'm having with you because you're my friends. And we want to talk about it. You see, in the beginning, how was man created? He was created in God's what? And what else? We were supposed, we were covered with the righteousness of God. Okay? 
Now watch this. When we get to Genesis 5, there's a game changer in the story. Genesis 5, there's a game changer in the story. It's very clear, actually. It says it right here. I have it on the screen. You're welcome to turn to it as well. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Then it says, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day they were created. Now, verse 3 is what really got my attention. And this was the talking point that I had with my fellow ministers. I don't believe that it is a lie to tell someone today in 2022 that they're made in the image of God. I don't think that it is a holistic error. But what I do believe is that we are the degraded version of the image of God. And the work of the gospel and the plan of salvation is for God to recreate his image in us. The reason I believe this is because of verse 3. It says, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So as children of Adam, we don't have that righteous, innocent nature when we are born in this world. As children of Adam, we are born with a sinful nature. It's a game changer. It's a game changer from the beginning of creation. And this is why, I, nah, I got to tell you, I, I enjoy my teens group. I really do. That's why, that's why when we had all these baptismal candidates and everything, at first I remember talking with Brother Peter, and I said, Peter, I said, listen, man, uh, you know, we, we got all these folks who want to get baptized. We need to do a baptismal preparation class. Um, you know, maybe we have to get somebody else. I, I was entertaining the thought. Maybe we have to get somebody else to teach the teens so I could spend time with the newly baptismal candidates. But as I began to think about the teens, and as I began to think about how much I enjoy these precious folks, God was making it very clear, no, 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 you, you can't leave them alone. You don't have to work around that. And so my, my beloved baptismal candidate friends, I called them with, my, with a tender voice. I was like, hi. You know, you gotta be nice when you're asking folks for, to, do, to do sacrificial favors. You can't be like, hey, listen, I need to talk to you. You know, you don't go like that. That's not going to work. So I'm literally like, hi, how are you? You having a good day? Yeah, me too. You know, I'm, I'm trying to bubble them up. But I, I had to ask, can we meet at 9.15 in the morning? And can we meet earlier? Because there's a teen group that I meet with at 10 o'clock, and I just can't leave them. And they were so kind and so gracious that they said, Brother Lemon, no problem. And I, I thank every single one of you. You know who you are, who's been coming 915. Perhaps it's a sacrifice for you. Please, I, I thank you for your sacrifice. I'm serious. But I get to still hang out with my people. And one of the things, it's like, in, in, you know, when we, when we have our meeting, our Sabbath school with the teens, we have real talk. And, what, and part of the real talk that we have is just going into, like, look, you know, if you get up in the morning and you're like, I don't want to have worship. I don't like it. I tried it. It was garbage. It was whack. It was like, nah, I don't like it. I'm not like, oh, how dare you say that in the house of the living God? It's like, no. I'm like, listen, I hear you. I understand. I'm like, I understand where you guys are coming from. I get it. I'm like, family, do you understand? We have a nature that naturally, without training, hates God and his words doesn't want to follow his words. We have a nature that's, that naturally says this is not interesting. How much the more if we've cultivated things in our lives to give us such high level stimulus that when these boring black and white letters, I mean, hey, for some people, the black and white letters in this book do not compare to retina display. The, the high tech people understand what I just said. The screens on our phones and our iPads and tablets, they're so vibrant. They're so filled with so much color. It looks almost like 3D, like you can stick your hand inside of the thing and play with whatever's in front of you. And then for some people, after looking at all that and then picking up black and white letters, it doesn't have the same stimulus. And so we have to go through a training. We have to go through a, a, a reprogramming. We have to experience something that can get us on the page with God that we can actually say, wow. Jesus is altogether lovely, 
and it takes time, but we have very real talk in that room. And we talk about the realities of lack of interest, but I'm talking to my young brothers and sisters. We've been trying to get them to have more communion with God. Family, parents, I'm just letting you know what we're teaching your kids. We go over with them very clearly. If you're having morning worship with mom and dad, by the grace of God, let nothing stop it. We encourage it. But I let them know, but that's not going to be enough. If Jesus is going to be your best friend, you need to learn how to talk to him yourself. So I'm literally showing them how to have communion with God. Right now, in doing that, I put the charge out. I said, all right, brothers, sisters, uh, we're going to do this over this week. Let me know how it goes. I come back in class next week and I ask them. I said, OK, how'd it go? How many times y'all had devotion? Some of them was like, well, I did it once. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, man, you did it once. That's fantastic. Let's see next week if we can do it again and add some bonuses to it. A couple of them said, well, I actually did it twice. Yeah. I was like, yes. I was like, man, that's fantastic. What made you do it another time? And we build on it. Some of them was like, didn't do it at all. I was like, yes. <laughs> because at least you're aware that you didn't do it. And I'm sure that next week you're going to give it a better shot. Am I right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, brother, Lim, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so all I'm saying is we have a nature that fights this thing every day. We all have it. It's our inheritance. We didn't ask for it, but we got it. And as a result of that, there's not just a book called Great Controversy. You and I experience great controversy in our hearts every day. There's a side of us, I know what's right and I need to do it. And there's a side of us that says, I don't want to do it. And there's this war going on inside. Did you know the plan of salvation helps us with this? I mean, this, this, the more that I'm studying this beautiful subject of the plan of salvation, I'm like, Father, I see it. It's like I see what you're trying to do with us to get us on some real higher ground with you. But there's some things about this sinful nature that we, we need to get clear before we progress, because I'm letting you know right now, the victory that God wants to give you is complete and total. Let me repeat that. The victory that God wants to give you and give me is complete and total. We praise God for the victory that we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm letting you know right now, there are some of us that are slaves to certain things in this room. Get ready. By the grace of God, you're finally going to get your victory. You're going to get your victory. It's not even a question. The victory has already been secured for us. What we need to do now, first and foremost, is believe. Because all things are possible to him that believes. But if you shoot yourself down before you even get started, then you can't make it. And we won't make it. You see, when we deal with the subject of the sinful nature, there's good news in this story. But there's a way that sinful nature is taught where it's very bad news in the story. Is it sinful nature or is it original sin? The two are not the same. And there are many people in this world, possibly in this congregation, that not only believe we have a sinful nature, but believe we have something called original sin. And this is one of the most deadliest doctrines that can exist in the world of theology. It's like an usher. You know, to me, people often look down on ushers. They don't give them much credit for anything. But in my opinion, ushers are dynamic people, amazing people, because an usher sets the tone for the worship experience. Whatever attitude they meet at the door is going to prepare the rest of their day inside the house of God. If an usher comes in, he's like, more people are coming. 
if, if the usher has a negative, bad attitude, that person's going to be like, okay, you know, and, that, and, and, and here the brother's preaching, and that person's still thinking back, did you, you, you see that attitude of that usher? It's like, you know, it sometimes sticks with you, right? Ushers set the tone. But what happens when somebody comes into the door and, and we're like, hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. What's your name? And they welcome, they're greeting, they're loving, they're kind, etc. Yeah, let me take you to your seat. Let me give you the king's treatment, the red carpet. And you go ahead and you walk them to their seats or whatever, and you say, you enjoy your day. If there's anything we could do to help you, got a child that's all out of control and everything, that usher comes back. Is there anything that I could do to help you with your precious little one? Just kind and loving. Man, that usher will make that person say, I don't know what, I don't even know what the preacher's going to preach. I'm coming back here because these people know how to treat people. So it is with the word. Depending on how we usher into our study of the plan of salvation, it can set us on a path of all right or it can set us on a path of all wrong. And so it is that there's no way I'm going to touch on the subject of the plan of salvation without first making it clear about this reality, this battle that we're in with this nature of ours and how God can help us overcome the calls of this nature. But the question is, do we even believe it's possible to overcome the calls? If somebody believes in original sin, they don't. What is it? Original sin. The concept of original sin is not in the Bible. It's, it's not mentioned in the scriptures or anything like that. It's a concept. And notice who, put, who brought it together. The concept of original sin was first alluded to in the second century by Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, in his controversy with certain dualist Gnostics. Other church fathers, such as Augustine, and that's probably the big name that you'll hear when you think about the subject of original sin. It says Augustine also developed the doctrine, seeing it as based on the New Testament teaching of Paul, the Apostle, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, and the Old Testament verse of Psalm 51. Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, Ambrosiaster considered that humanity shares in Adam's sin transmitted by human generation. Watch this. Augustine's formulation of original sin was popular among Protestant reformers such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, who equated original sin with concupiscence, affirming that it is persisted even after baptism and completely destroyed freedom. It destroys freedom. Bottom line. Bottom line. According to Augustine and Calvin, humanity inherits, watch this, not only Adam's depraved nature, but also the actual guilt of his transgression. So when you and I are born, we're already born guilty. Is that true? I sure hope not. Is that true? We're born guilty? You see, if a baby is born guilty, maybe it does make sense to sprinkle them with water in baptism. Because they're already born guilty, condemned, and destined for hell. That's not how I read the Bible. I'm not sure what Bible we might be reading from. But that's what this teaches. In other words, if original sin is really true, these five points become factual, which should be concerning to any child of God. Number one, if it is true, all men are guilty before God because of the sins of Adam, even if it were possible for them to live without performing a single sinful act in their entire lives. You're guilty already because it's just, you got the nature, you're guilty. That's it. Whether you live a righteous life or not. Number two, they are judged and condemned by God for this guilt, which they inherit from Adam as fully as for their own sins. Three, this condition which is inherited from Adam is the fountain or source of all their temptations, lusts, and evil desires. Four, it is possible for man to get rid of, it is not possible for man to get rid of this condition while he lives upon this earth even through the power of Christ. Five, it is therefore utterly impossible for men to ever achieve complete victory over sin while living upon this earth, and it is dangerous for them to even try. If original sin is true, then these five points become fact. 
And ultimately, what then is really being testified is that Satan is more powerful than God. Satan's power is so strong, it keeps us in sin. God's power is so weak, it cannot deliver us from it. And sadly, this is how a lot of people approach their Christian journey. They already approach it defeated, and they already approach it with pre-prepared excuses for just about every sin that they do. This is the reason why today in certain political realms, it doesn't matter if somebody does something that is heinous, terrible, and ungodly. We just say, oh, well, we're all sinners. We all mess up. And then we thank God for that robe that covers our sins. Am I getting too deep? Am I getting too deep? Is this too deep? I pray it isn't. You see, the Bible has a very clear testimony. What's the testimony of Scripture? That same Romans 5, 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world. That's true. Then it says, and death by sin. That's true, too. It says, and so death passed upon all men. That's true. But the next word is for. The word for is better translated because. Why does death that started with Adam fall on us? It is not because we just have his nature. It's because we all what? We all sinned. At some point, we sinned. That's why the death passes on. The death does not pass on just because you're born with the nature. The death passes on us because we ended up doing what our forefather did. Are you following the difference? Well, let's get another witness. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so, that means in like manner. It says, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Question. Do people by default get the benefits of Christ's resurrection and are made alive unto God? Or do they have to choose that? They have to choose and accept that, and then they're made alive. Is that right? Then that's true also for Adam. We choose sin, we get death. We don't just get death because we had a sinful nature. We choose sin, we get death. How about this one? Exodus 32, you remember Moses, the children of Israel, they, they committed terrible sin, right? Moses wanted to suffer their punishment. So he says in Exodus 32 and 31, and Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. And then look at what Moses says next. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. In other words, let their guilt fall on me. That's what Moses asked for. Are you following? I wonder what God's answer was. God says, and the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned, him shall I blot out of my book. You're not just going to go ahead and inherit their guilt, Moses. Whoever sinned against me, that's the one that gets blotted out. Ezekiel said it nicely when he said it like this. The soul that sins, it shall die. And then it goes on to say, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon him. This coincides with the sermon we did called Urgency a couple of weeks ago, where we talked about we are the architects of our future. God makes it very clear. The concept of original sin is not biblical. And I would encourage every single one of you, don't entertain that. Don't believe because you have a sinful nature, you cannot stop and overcome certain strongholds that are in your life. Please don't believe that. That is error, and it's the most deadly error. Do you know that God actually could accomplish things for us even in the womb? Did you know the Bible actually talks about this? Think about it. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. 
continuing, for thou art my hope, O Lord God, thou art my trust from my youth. By thee have I been holding up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. And do you know what we're about to read? This could have happened for us. Just like it happened for this precious soul. The Bible says, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. This crushes the idea of original sin. We could be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. You see, the only reason we have the story of John the Baptist is because we first had an Elizabeth and Zacharias. If there were more Elizabeths and Zacharias, families, people who were walking in the fear and admonition of the Lord, surrendered fully to God, God could have possibly filled many of us with his Holy Spirit, even from the womb. There's nothing in the Bible that makes John the Baptist above every single one of us in this room. And that's why parenthood is such a sacred thing, isn't it? And I know that there are many of us as parents, as I'm a parent, of four adult children, adult young people. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, if I'm not careful, man, I can go into a state of depression because I know how many times I've made mistakes. I know how many times I've erred. I know how many times I've messed up and looked back at my fatherhood and said, man, I could have did better. Lord, forgive me. But I am so thankful that we serve a God that is overwhelmingly in love with the idea of being merciful. God loves to be gracious to us. God loves to take us and he loves to build us up. And he forgives us. And there many times my children will tell you, my wife and I, we go to our children. Mom and dad, we did not do the best by you in certain areas. Will you please forgive us? And there's a reason we ask them, will you please forgive us? You know, we don't just say, I'm sorry. We say, we are sorry. Will you please forgive us? And our children understand, once you say, yes, mom and dad, I forgive you, they forfeit the right to bring up past sins. They forfeit the right. Whenever you tell somebody, I forgive you for doing thus and so, I am forfeiting the right from that point forward to now bring the old sins back up in your face. God took it and he buried it. And last I checked, Christ is the resurrection. Why are we trying to resurrect people's faults? It's like sometimes you got to leave folks alone. If they have confessed, if they have acknowledged and they have apologized, then we need to forgive and we need to let it stay where God buried it at the depths of the sea. And so it is that I understand, parents, if any of you are in this room and you got conviction in your heart or whatever, all that we can do as mom and dads is Ephesians 5.16, right? All that we can do is say, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Just redeem the time. From this day forward, do what's right. Do what you know to be right. From this day forward, that's all you can do. We can't rewind time. Thank the Lord we can redeem time. But brothers and sisters, our understanding of the sinful nature is we have a nature that has a natural bend, a natural leaning to doing that which is wrong. But God has provided something in the plan of salvation that we can overcome the cause of our sinful nature. This is the truth about our sinful nature. Away with our excuses. Away with the idea that I'm like this way and I'm going to stay this way. No, you are not. Last I checked, you're not a prophet, neither am I. Don't prophesy on yourself. Amen. Don't be going around, well, uh, this is how I am. This is how I'm always going to be. Says who? Says who? Only prophets can foretell the future. Are you a prophet? Because if you're a prophet, I'm going to test you. <laughs> the Bible says prove all things. And I thank God I'm not a prophet. That means I have no right to tell me what my future will be. I have given that right to Jesus. And Jesus says, these are the thoughts. These are the plans that I have for you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. And to give you an expected end. That's what God has for each and every one of us. So don't you dare allow your head to sink down in sorrow because of your failures. You go ahead and fail, you acknowledge your sins. 
You acknowledge it before God and before those whom you've hurt. You plead and ask for forgiveness, and as God gives assurance for forgiveness, and then your children, your spouse, or whomever it is, as they forgive you, you are free. Walk like free children of God. Stop walking like slaves. And believe that God has made you free. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that understanding, yes, we do have a sinful nature. We do. But thank God, sin is always a choice. The nature tempts, but the sin is a choice. The nature is going to pull you. Christ was tempted, but he did not sin. Hebrews 4, 15. He was tempted, but he did not sin. So please never confuse temptation with sin. I think that was our Sabbath school this morning in the youth group. Is that right? Yeah, man. Praise God. That's a beautiful subject. I smiled when Sister Mina said that. I said, that's the subject of the hour. We need to know that temptation is not sin. And just because the sinful nature pulls at us, it does not mean you have to surrender to it. There's a power source in the plan of salvation that God has availed to every single one of us, that we can have absolute, complete victory. But that victory will not come easy. Go to Romans chapter 7. Let's bring out some final points here. Romans chapter 7 God does say some things about it. That victory is ours. That victory is possible. Yes, we do have a sinful nature. Thank God we don't have original sin. But nevertheless, we do have a sinful nature. And as a result of that, there will constantly be a bending, a calling, a pulling. But through the merits and grace of Christ, we don't have to surrender to it. The plan of salvation provides a solution. And the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 7, and we're looking at verse 14. If you're there, please say amen. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but he says, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I have a nature that unless I'm given an appropriate power source, sooner or later, I am going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to make a foul decision. I'm going to make a bad choice. And Paul talks about that. That word carnal, it, it's, it's the human nature with all of its frailties, physically and morally. We all got it. But we don't have to surrender to it. Paul relates to us and he says in Romans 7 again, he says in verses 15 and 19, he says, listen, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Does anybody relate to this? This is the battle of what's going on with that sinful nature. The nature wants to do wrong. The nature hates to do right. But our minds are saying, but I want to do right. And I want to cease doing wrong. And then overall in the chapter, Paul says, who shall deliver us from the body of this death? But the first reality, you see, God wants to justify us, but there's something we must see. Go to Romans chapter 4. There's something we must see. God wants to justify us. God wants to clean us up. God wants to perfect us. God wants to do all sorts of things for our lives to make us blessed and happy. But there's something we need to realize first. And we need to realize it from the heart. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, the Bible says right there in verse 5, it says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Question. According to the verse, can we be justified? According to the verse, can we be justified? Yeah? What has to happen first, according to the verse? In order for us to be justified, what has to happen first, according to the verse? We need to believe in God? It's not enough yet. Nope. What has to happen first? It's in the verse. The open book Never fail an open book test. It's in the verse. Faith, that's true. Something else. Don't work, that's true. Something else. We need to believe in him who justifies us. That was really close, Elder. That was hot, but not hot enough. According to the verse. Here goes, and you know what? 
maybe, maybe this is indicative of our battle and our struggle, right? According to the verse, who's the only people that get justified? God who justifies thee? Wow. So you know what that means? I need to first see and agree that I am ungodly. And then I can get the justification. Until I am convinced I need help, I will not seek help. As long as I'm busy justifying myself, I don't need his justification. And so one of the hardest realities that God tries to get across to humanity, that he might save us, is he needs us to agree with the fact of our true condition. What is our true condition? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? God says, then how can you and I do good who are accustomed, taught to do evil? The Bible also says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, talking about you, you and me. You know, we often say God knows my heart. Yes, he does. He wrote about it. And he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God also says, hey, guess what? But we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Independent of God, independent of surrender to his will. God says even our best works are tainted. And God says we need to see this and we need to accept it. The sooner we see it, the sooner we accept it, the faster he can deliver us. But as long as we keep the language of, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as they are. Or when somebody comes to us, oh, but what about you? And we immediately bypass what we needed to think about, and we immediately go to the person, but yeah, yeah, but what about you? And, and we start going there. We miss some of our greatest blessings. It was right in our face. And the Bible, you know, one thing we need to accept, family, is that the Bible is very graphic. The Bible has some graphic stories, but it doesn't put out the, it doesn't put out the, the, the graphic explanation of things for the purpose of entertainment and, and wasting time. God does it because he really wants to impress our heart with what he's trying to communicate so we can run to him. We can stop walking to him and we can run to him. I, was, I love the little book Steps to Christ. I would never take anything away from it. But I've been thinking about writing an article called Run to Christ. And seriously, just, you know, step fast. You know, sometimes we step a little faster, you know, <laughs> a little faster. Because sometimes we're taking so much time, we're missing out on blessings or we're continuing sufferings that could stop. You know what I'm saying? God is patient. He is long suffering. But until we surrender, the suffering will continue. He doesn't want that for us. Are you following so sometimes in graphic nature, God expresses. So he says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Do you know, you know what the word filthy? You know what the word filthy means? Filthy rag? I looked this thing up. It's graphic. But God put it in the Bible. And he put it in the Bible not for entertainment. He puts it in to impress on us. Don't dare trust in yourself, not even for a moment. That word filthy literally means the menstrual flux of a woman. When a woman goes through menstruation, he says, when you and I try to present righteousness, independent of Christ, we're trying to take the credit. Look at what I built. Look at the business I established. Look at the income I make. Look at the donations I give. Look at the baptisms I did. It doesn't matter when we try to give ourselves credit superior to that which belongs to God and God alone. The Bible says in him we live, move and have our being. So any great thing you can do with your hands, your legs, your feet or your head, it's in him that we were able to do that. Give him the praise and don't take it to ourselves. Right. So here it is that God says when we present righteousness and try to give ourselves the credit, God says, before my eyes, it looks like it not not only this, but it says filthy rags. The word rags literally means apparel, raiment and wardrobe. Imagine your entire clothing soaked in a woman's menstruation. 
God says, that's what our righteousness looks like when we try to take credit upon ourselves. Why does God give us that graphic picture? Because he wants us to really surrender all, even all of our self-righteousness. Now watch this. Examples of the frailties of human nature. Israel, all that the Lord says we will do, and it was only a few weeks later, they violated everything God told them to do. Then you remember Peter. Peter comes along and Peter says, listen, I will never be offended of you. Isn't that right? This is the frailty of human nature. Why do we give this thing so much trust, right? It's so frail. It's so weak. It's so broken. And this is what God is saying. God says, I don't want you to do this. I want you to see your true condition. Because it's only when we see our true condition, family, that's when he can do the miracle. You see, we have a nature, unfortunately, we did get from our parents, our foreparents. And that nature is very depraved. That nature can only be overcome by doing something Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus. We must be born again. And so it is that God says, listen, the reality is that this is our condition. And when we think about who this applies to, it literally, this, this truth, it applies to the world. It applies to those who are partying, drinking, doing what they want, when they want, how they want. This was me, hands down. This was my life. No question about it. My wife knows this was her life. Many of us, this is how we live. We grew up in the world. We did what we wanted to, when we wanted to, how we wanted to. And we did it with boldness. That's why there's no way in the world I'm going to be a child of God and all of a sudden I'm going to be all timid. When I was in the world, I was like, yo, yo, and I'm making noise for Satan. I'm making noise for Satan. I'm making double noise for Jesus, guaranteed. And I've already been doing it. If I can open my mouth for corruption, I will doubly open my mouth for righteousness. But the message that God wants to give, he's given it to the world. That's why the Bible says very clearly, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but a... If we believe not, we're condemned already. And that's not good. God said there's a plan of salvation for those in the world. But it's not just those in the world that need this message. It's those in the church. It's those in all of the religious organizations and religious institutes the world over. Why? Because even Isaiah had to say to religious people, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is soundness in it. No soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been cleaned or clothed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Yet... Isaiah says, come now, let's reason together. He presents the ugly position. He shows us this reality that nobody likes. No one likes to see I'm ungodly. No one likes to see I'm unconverted. No one likes to see that I get it. But it's the only way that we can receive our healing. We must see our need for salvation. And you're going to see how God shows us. I cannot wait to go through these series with us. But church leaders, too. Religious leaders as well. The message is not just for the world. The message is not just for members of the church, but the message is also for leaders in the church. It was John the Baptist that said to church leaders at a certain time, he says, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat appropriate for repentance. The message of the revisitation of the plan of salvation belongs to every class of humanity, those in the world, members of the church, leaders in the church. Nobody's exempt. Nobody. God says we all need to take a closer look at ourselves. And the best news in the world for me is that when I constantly see myself, brothers and sisters, for who I really am, I see my desperate need for Christ, my righteousness, my salvation, I take my walk with God very seriously. 
I've been in this movement for 30 years and it'd be a tragedy for me to be in this movement this long just to be lost at the end. I mean, that would just be tragic. And so there's no way I'm going to be going through all of this just to be lost. So I'm going to, I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I'd recommend you do the same. And thank the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible says in Hebrews 7, wherefore he's able to save them to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. I am so thankful that the lamb, the priest, and the judge is on my side. When I look at the manifestations of Christ, I see him as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When I look at Christ, I see my high priest that resides in the sanctuary above, interceding. But I also see my high priest that is going to execute very, very righteous judgment. And I'm very grateful that he's on my side. He's on your side. And so the reality is, brothers and sisters, we do have a depraved nature. But we are not hopeless. We do have some battles ahead of us, but the victory is already ours through Christ, our righteousness. We can overcome, and that is not merely speaking to civil rights agitations, but that is also applicable to our spiritual battles. God wants us to understand that the plan of salvation that he's going to unfold to us week after week as we go through these studies I believe with all of my heart, we're finally going to enter into a phase of the gospel and our experience with Jesus that is going to even it's going to even surprise us at the power of the simplicity of the gospel. And my hope and my prayer is that when we are done. That when Jesus looks at us, he can see you and he can see me as children that through his merits and through his love, he was actually able to save to the uttermost. And if this is the type of salvation you want and you're saying, Lord, I want you to accomplish in me what I could never accomplish in and of myself. I accept your testimony of my true condition. Help me to see my desperate need for you moment by moment. If that's you, please stand to your feet with me. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you because we need to pray together. God is getting ready to do something very special, beloved. Very, very special. And I know. We're going to realize more than ever that wonderful statement. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. May God be your hope and God be your courage as we go forward in faith. Our loving Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for all that you've taught us, all that you've shown us. We praise you, dear God, for the way that your spirit has helped us to see just a slight glimpse of which we will magnify over the next several weeks of how you have a plan to save us from this depraved nature and all of its callings that is made upon our lives and that we can overcome even as Christ overcame. Lord, continue to make it plain to our hearts. Help us to have deep anticipation as we look forward to seeing you do for us what we never could have accomplished for ourselves. And may you receive all the praise and all the credit for it. It's our praise and prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen, amen. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.